Hi, this is William Beaver Bausch, and you're listening to Counting Measures, Passing Notes, a podcast which talks about music, education, and the places they meet. As you may know, I'm a drummer who has been teaching in New York City for the past 26 years. For a variety of reasons, I don't teach anymore. This is part of my effort to make peace with that and talk with some of the folk who shaped and shared the journey that brought me here. In this week's adventure, I got to chat with my ex-colleague, flautist and music pedagogue, Selena Daniels. Selena and I were privileged to be two parts of the now-fabled Bronx Preparatory Charter School's artistic team, teaching music and arts to a bunch of smart, funny, talented, and occasionally really annoying kids in the South Bronx. We often played together in the pit of the school's annual musical. Shout out to theater guru Kate Corford, Kate Q. Our classes collaborated and performed together in school concerts, and along with the other oddballs in our department, shout out to our intrepid artistic leader, Jeffrey Kjorpus, Dr. MD, generally tolerated and supported each other through the changes, challenges, and chaos that came with teaching there. Teaching anywhere, really. Selena left Bronx Prep a year before I did, moving on to start her own music program at a network charter school in Brooklyn that shall be unnamed. Three years later, here we are, each having decided to exit the classroom, at least for the time being. So I guess that worked out as planned. As always, we began by chatting about her origin story in music and in teaching, and moved on to specific challenges of working in a network charter school with, as she put it, the default assumption being everything you're doing is wrong, that every aspect of your teaching and student behavior must be minutely controlled, which didn't sound so vastly different from my last public school experience. Even after making the tough decision to quit, Selena remains fiercely passionate about working with and for kids, and her sense of humor is pretty awesome. And she cursed once, so I got to bleep her. Here's Selena Daniels. So, I always have a bad introduction. I always have to re-record my first sentence, so I'm going to try and get this right. Let's see. So, how did you first get into music? Did you have a musical family? That was a keeper. Uh, no, it actually was pretty arbitrary for me. I um, started singing in choir in fourth grade and was pretty convinced that I was going to be the next Julie Andrews until my parents told me I was a terrible singer. Um, I guess I can scratch that. <laughs> Did you have a supportive family? <laughs> no, they were very honest. Um, and so when a permission slip came home for a band, I think flute was like the first thing on the list. And I thought, well, okay, maybe that would be fine. So I signed up for flute and not really giving it a whole bunch of thought and Turned out I was much better at that than singing, so uh, stuck with that. But it's the problem with giving 10-year-olds the power to make their own decisions is they have lifelong consequences. So, so uh, the flute chose you? Yes, the flute chose me. It's my spirit instrument. Excellent. <laughs> what I remember from previous chats is that you didn't have a teacher. Is that correct? Yeah, I um, actually didn't take lessons outside of school until I was uh, a senior in high school. Um, and the reason I started taking lessons was because I had decided to be a music major. And um, 
didn't really know anything about the process of doing college auditions, so my band director really encouraged me to, to take lessons. Um, up until that point, I had spent just a lot of time playing along with CDs, sometimes flute CDs, sometimes like Disney CDs, sometimes classical pieces that were written for completely other instruments because I didn't really know what the formal process was of studying an instrument. I just really enjoyed playing in my free time. Um, so yeah, I would say I didn't like outside of school have any kind of formal but you were playing by ear, or you had bought the sheet music? I would buy piano fake books, and I would read piano parts, um, like either up or down an octave, of just the melody line, and try and, and accompany CDs that way. Um, there wasn't a lot of flute sheet music available in my local music store. It was mainly like arrangements of pop tunes or... The ACDC songbook or whatever. Yeah, which translates really well to flute. You know, it's really great. So, so yeah, but no, I wasn't doing it by ear. I was always reading sheet music. Hmm. And senior year, is that, I'm, I'm guessing your, in your school there wasn't a culture of, like, private study, or were you? No, no, it was, I was probably one of the only people taking private lessons. We had a really great music program. Um, we had a really strong director, but I wouldn't say that, that most of my fellow classmates were taking private lessons. The kids who were taking private lessons tend to actually not be involved in band. They were taking piano or something like that. They weren't studying like trumpet in their free time. Um, no, it wasn't super common. So what made the program strong? Um, I had a band director who was kind of a crazy force of nature. Um, so we had, I think it was a combination of things. We had a really strong middle school theater program and that director worked really, really closely with the high school director. And I mean, I grew up in a small town, so these schools were like across the street from each other. So when you signed up for a band in sixth grade, you already kind of knew what it was gonna look like when you were in 11th and 12th grade because you had access to those high school kids and you could see what they were doing and they were kind of cool. Um, so, and I also remember when I went to make my schedule for high school, like sitting with the guidance counselor and, and the understanding being that I was signing up for four years of music, not that I was going to get my arts credit and move it on. It was very, very much encouraged to stay in the program. So you had kids who'd been like basically studying an instrument for six or seven years by the time they got to their senior year. So that made for some really, really strong players. So the, the retention was a huge, huge part of it. I mean, it just, it was like a, those were your people in high school. They were my friends and that was my group. And it was just, that's what we did. We were band kids. We were the dorks. But the band was good enough musically to hold your interest you were playing. Yeah, definitely. We were doing really challenging, really challenging pieces. Like I remember going to band festivals and, and competing at like the highest um, grade level, like the fifth and sixth grade level. Um, so you definitely felt like you were learning and being challenged within the context of the class. You weren't just kind of learning tunes to get by to the next concert. Like our director was always pushing us to to grow as a as a group and think about where we fit musically within an actual ensemble. So um, yeah, it was definitely a challenging challenging experience. And your band director encouraged you to pursue a career in music? He did. He was, yeah. <laughs> he 
say that with a tone. His, his point. Um, <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> it's his fault. No, he was... I mean, I think I decided probably around the time I was 15 that I really, really liked it and I would like to, to potentially teach one day. Um, and he was always really encouraging for me to do that. I mean, he helped me seek out um, opportunities outside of school my senior year. He helped me have an internship at the middle school across the street. I was playing in a couple community ensembles. Um, he never kind of suggested that it was a poor choice to enter an arts career. Um, and at the time, I mean, arts education was, especially where I grew up, it was really important. Like we couldn't foresee a time in that area where, where band programs would be cut or where the funding wouldn't be there for that or um, kids wouldn't want to stay in band for four years. It was just like a way of life in Central Virginia. You had a high school band program. So um, no, he was always 100% on board with, with me going to music school and getting a music degree. It seemed like a really solid choice. I feel like you were foreshadowing there. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny because then I didn't go and teach in any kind of program that, that actually looked like what I had pictured as a 15-year-old. I mean, I had kind of, I guess, in the back of my mind thought, okay, well, I will grow up and have a marching band and a concert band and and work in a public school district where these things are part of the school culture and part of the school community. And I will never have to argue why they need to exist. They will just exist and I will have a job in them and that will be great. Um, and then I moved to New York and didn't do any of those things. So um, had a very, very different music ed experience than he probably would have predicted for me. Um, which isn't to say it's been a bad one, it's just been like really different than what 15-year-old me imagined being a music teacher would be. Is the program the same in Virginia or, or has that um, My band director shifted? has actually since retired. Um, he was very in tune. Um, he left probably about somewhere between five and ten years ago because arts education was shifting in the county and there was more emphasis being put on um, kind of the amount of time kids were going to need to take these state standardized tests and, and that was leaving less time for arts instruction because there needed to be more time for test instruction. Test instruction. Um, so he kind of took early retirement actually which always surprised me because he seemed to live and breathe and I'm not even sure he had a house outside the band room. It kind of just felt like he lived there. Um, so I think there has been changes since I left. Um, there's still a band program. There's still a marching band. There's still a concert band. Um, when I go to visit my parents, you can still kind of hear them when the wind blows correctly. The sound carries over, which is nice, but um, I don't get the sense that it's as much of a, like a institution in the school as it once was. Um, but I can't be certain about that, having not been back to my high school in an undisclosed disclosed number of years. I will protect your anonymity, Thank you. especially since I don't know. <laughs> you weren't ever thinking about being a player. You wanted to be a music teacher from yeah. the beginning. I always wanted to be a music instructor. Um, funny, I always wanted to be a music instructor that kept playing in some capacity that felt like my music teachers had always been performers in the community. Um, 
And that had always been like a really important thing to them was to keep their craft kind of alive and breathing. Not that, so they weren't just like teaching theoretical music. They were actually musicians themselves, but I always knew I wanted to teach. I didn't want to pursue like a professional playing career. How was teaching music different than you expected it? So I guess that's a logical... That would be a logical next step. Um, it was different in probably every single way that I imagined it was going to be. So... Well, you... you Wait, so let me back up. So you went somewhere to study music education yeah, I undergrad. Yeah, I went to Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, and I got a music education degree. And then I taught in a private school for a year at an all-girls school. In Virginia. Um, in Virginia. And I had like a very basic general music class where I taught one class once a day for one quarter. So one quarter I would have sixth grade and the next quarter I would have seventh grade. And um, I had like half a classroom. The other half of the classroom was an English classroom and I had like a shelf on one side of the room. Um, and it was actually really, I mean, it sounds crazy now, but it was a very positive introduction to teaching. I had a great principal. Um, It was a small school. I wasn't overwhelmed with planning because I had like that one class that I could really focus on. And then I taught privately in Virginia for a year. I had a studio of about 30 kids, which wow. was really like a great experience. And um, it was nice to have like so much flexibility in my schedule and, and I really liked it. And then, so I decided you know, I'm really enjoying this. I should throw all of it away, all of it away and go and get my master's degree in performance. Um, so I went to NYU and got a performance master's uh, for two years and hated New York and intended to leave. So logically got a teaching job in New York City and ended up teaching in New York for the next 10 years. Um, and my first teaching job in New York City was um, in a charter school in the Bronx. And I remember like having my interview with the principal and him walking me to see where I would be teaching and him taking me to this history classroom and kind of pointing to a pile of soprano saxophones in the corner. I'm probably like the first person in the world to ever teach a class with six soprano saxophones. It was awful. Um, So I like quickly realized like my first step as a music teacher wasn't going to be like, oh, here's this amazing, beautiful, huge band room. It was going to be, okay, kids, we're going to learn how to move these desks out of the way so we have space to put up music stands. And that was a real, a real eye opener for me. Like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You're teaching in the city. This is not what the plan was. Um, so it was not what I expected. Was this Bronx Prep or was this a This was Bronx Prep, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if we're allowed to say names. We could we can say names or we can well we could say Bronx Prep because I worked there. After that, if <laughs> you don't want to, I'm not sure I really want to reveal what comes after that. They might come and get me. Okay. Well, uh, again, your your secret's safe. We'll 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 decide on a secret name for you. We'll call you something. I don't know whatever your porn name is or something like. Aren't there oh, algorithms, yeah, algorithms for that? Algorithms for figuring that out. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just let me know what that is, and okay. I'll. I will That's good. I appreciate that. Awkwardly chop in your new name. Um, so that was Bronx Prep. So you're sharing uh, with a history teacher. Yeah. The room and and all soprano saxes, which are of course the most the intonated, best instrument, pleasing. And what was funny was, 
And what I liked about that was the kids who got to play the soprano sax were super pumped about it. Like, as a musician and as a teacher, I'm like, oh my God, this is pedagogically the worst thing in the world. But the kids were so excited. You can give them anything and they're like, they're pumped about it, right? It could be a pair of sticks for five-year-olds and they're excited. But yeah, soprano saxes are terrible. I still don't, I still don't like listening to them. So uh, you were able to grow that program to expand beyond six soprano saxophones, which I assume is the cheapest saxophone, which is why anyone would bother to get more than one. Yeah. But then you had clarinets and flutes. I did. But, you know, what was cool about working there and, and working with you is that we had an arts team at that school. And so... I was able to expand in the realm of woodwinds because I knew like I am specializing in, in woodwinds and, and brass. And it was almost like giving a masterclass every day to kids in a, in a specialized setting. So I think that allowed for growth pretty quickly versus if I had been trying to teach also violin and also percussion and also piano and, and everything in one space. Um, so that was a really unique setup that we had there. Um, but yeah, we did end up growing and I think we did some really cool stuff there um and I think actually there oddly we had pretty good program retention like there was always space in the schedule for kids to to have arts classes and it was at least while I was working there arts were an important part of the school and um and that was huge because it meant that we had this like culture of kids wanting to come back year after year it wasn't just about getting that credit and then and moving on and checking that off your life experience list. Right. Or apparently as now, they, many of them cycle through like a third a year yeah. or something. I mean, you can totally master the violin in like four weeks. It's super simple. I think six is the, what the well, research supports. at that point, supports. you're ready for professional, <laughs> professional gigs. Uh, telemarketers. No one ever you calls me. I do. Is that what I called the other day? You call, yeah. Oh. I was I was shocked that I had a message that wasn't, you know, somebody saying, "This is Captain Smith from the IRS. You are in tax violation." Okay, great. Thank you so much. So the next question logically would be, "Why'd you leave?" Um, I felt. So I really liked it there, and I really loved working with the people. I felt like I really wanted to be, um, like, have this opportunity to to have a bigger program, um, to really, like... Use those skills that you had been trained in so long yes, ago? Yes, those skills of many years past to, um, to see if I could do it. Like, there's, I think there's always this... For me, I've always been interested in, in seeing could I be a little bit better at this than what I'm currently doing? And so for the next logical thing would be, can I run a whole program and not want to kill myself? Um, so this opportunity came up to work at uh, one of these big charter networks to start a music program in one of their high schools. And it seemed like a really great opportunity. Like I would get to build something from the ground up. I would get to decide what it looked like. I would get to decide the curriculum and, um, design the instrumentation and kind of have control over all facets of everything and really appealed to my inner control freak. So so I left and I went to Brooklyn because I hate working at places that are close to my house. Excellent. Well done. And I can tell that 
it work out exactly as you expected. It so did. It was great. No need to continue <laughs> with this interview. No, we're done here. Um, yeah, I mean, that was still not a traditional band program. I think, like, what I realized when I got there was a lot of my kids had really strong musical backgrounds from playing often in church. So a lot of my kids came in knowing how to play drum set, like, better than I would ever be at it. Or playing electric bass or playing electric guitar, playing keyboards, none of which have a space in a traditional high school symphonic band. Um, so my kind of strategy became, let's teach all of the things all at one time and hope for the best at the end of it. And it actually worked out pretty well. I found like I had a lot of opportunities to kind of put kids in charge of sections. Like if you have a really strong violin player, your job is to make sure the violins can do X, Y, and Z by the end of class. Um, or my guitar player, like teaching the two new beginning guitar players the basics of that instrument. And um, so I was kind of following this, this model that had I proposed to somebody in college that I was going to do this, they would have said, no, that's not, it's going to be terrible. You should never do that. Um, but we did five shows a year and they were good. You know, the kids sounded good. They got on stage and they weren't like, you know, going to work in any state festivals, but they were having a good time and they, they, they sounded like they were playing music. They made music. They made coherent sounds together. Um, I had one kid refer to it as a joyful ruckus, which I really liked, (laughs) um, but they were enjoying it. And again, like I had like I had some kids who wanted to come back year after year and do, do have this experience again. So I think one of the challenges to being a music teacher that you don't have when you're a like teaching another subject is is I'm going to have the same kid the following year and I can't teach them the same things. I have to figure out potentially in a class of 20 new children and five repeat children how to up the ante for those five kids so that they're still engaged and interested and Um, it's really like a differentiation challenge to use one of those lovely educational buzzwords. But I mean, I think being a music teacher is all about learning how to differentiate for everybody so that everyone is feeling some degree of success. Um, Because I would have like classes of mixed grades, mixed ability levels, mixed interest, just, oh, you're going to take music, go take music with Miss Daniels and she'll figure it out. Um, and I really wanted it to be a positive experience. I don't think every kid who walks through your door is going to be a professional musician, but you would like them to have a positive learning experience and hopefully a positive performance experience and, and, and know what that feels like to successfully participate in, in an ensemble. Cause it's a really cool feeling. It is absolutely. And to make your own tribe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, remember that year when we played Oye Como Va? Yeah, that was yes. awesome, you know? I think one of the coolest things is when, like, the kids start playing, like, one kid starts playing something by himself, and then everybody else joins in with them. Like, that's not what you're rehearsing that day, but they're like, hey, you know what, let's do this right now. And, and you know, generally I would just let them go with that because I felt like this is such an important thing for for developing culture, much to, much to the display of my overlords, yes. dismay of my overlords that... But how does this tie into the aim? Well, it doesn't, but it's great for their souls. Um, and that's like a... The aim. <laughs> it's a hard argument to make, but it was one of my favorite things. 
But you did argue it, and... I would argue it. I would, you know... And was your argument accepted? Sometimes, sometimes not. I think it... I mean, it's... I've only taught in charter schools, um, which is very, very different than where I went to school. It's, uh, it's a lot about control, and it's a lot about having a classroom where it really looks like everybody is engaged and knows like what is going on and is preferably pretty quiet while they're doing it. And a music class is often like complete opposite of that. Like there's you have to go through sounding like total crap to come out the other end sounding sounding good. Like I would have people observe my class and say, "Well, why why does everybody sound so bad? It's like they've been doing it for 3 weeks, you know." got to be patient here. We're going to sound bad for a little while. This is part of the process. Um, and I think an, an arts class with its kind of like the chaos that is inherent in making art and in the artistic learning process is not always going to fit really nicely into that like model of what an ideal charter school classroom would maybe look like. Guessing joyful ruckus does not describe the. No, uh, joyful ruckus is maybe not the buzzword we want to be using. Um, so yeah, so you start to feel like um, it becomes really hard as an educator to kind of walk this balance of of following the the rules of what the school and the network and and the powers that be have decided that you should be doing. And also, like, what you want your classroom to feel like. I'm okay with some noise and some chaos and some, like, craziness if they, that's how the kids are learning and that's how they're engaging with one another. And um, when you're constantly having to argue about why that's okay developmentally for kids, it's really exhausting and you start to feel like maybe there's just not a place for you or for what you're doing in that environment. Do we really want to talk about the effects of accountability? I mean, so-called accountability. Sure. You said control. You said they want to control, and you didn't say exactly what or who. I mean, okay, control is such a draconian word. Um, I think that that in the kind of like abstract, the teacher accountability is a good idea, right? Like, we should have to be held to. We need to be doing a good job. I think that that teachers have an incredible responsibility to. to, to educate children and for you it's like your job and you're doing the same thing year after year for the kid you may only get them for one year this is their only experience of this and you need to not screw it up like that's important I think somewhere along the line that took a turn into we don't trust you to do your job and that's when it becomes really toxic and that's when it starts to feel like you're not so much here for for making sure I'm doing what I need to be doing, the default assumption is I'm not doing that. And I need to be managed very closely in order to make sure that I'm doing that. And I think when you have a profession that attracts really creative, really intelligent, really compassionate people, that's very, very destructive because I don't think many people get into teaching because they like hate children and want to do terrible things to them. Basically, we want to do a good job um, and to be told day after day, well, actually, like, you're doing all these things wrong is 
really disheartening and drives people away. So, you know, I I think there needs there needs to be something, but does that need to be like a rubric that is filled in on a scale of one to five from these like 257 points of evaluation in your classroom and you're getting observed constantly? Um, no, I think that's crazy. Um, but maybe if everyone that's teaching is 22, like that's what you have to do. Because, I mean, teaching is a craft, right? You practice teaching the way you would practice law or you would practice medicine, but there's like this idea in teaching that we come out of like an education program and we know exactly what we're supposed to be doing and it takes a lot of time. I don't think you can force that through rubrics and well and homogenize it right yeah well and that is easier to see if somebody's doing something right or wrong if everyone's supposed to be doing the same thing it's really easy to point and say that person is not doing what we want them to be doing um here i thought the problem was that you're trying to attract creative compassionate you know talented people because if you just cut that out then it would be a lot easier here's your script yeah or I guess in your case, it had the, the Well, I got gap to write my special. own scripts. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, that's nice. I mean, that was nice and really time-consuming. Um, yeah, we've had the scripts. I've seen the headsets where there's, like, actually somebody to whispering in your ear what you should be saying at that given moment. I mean, and what's funny is, like, when I mention it to people who are, like, have been in education for longer than I have, like, 30, 40 years, they look at me and go, that's f***ing insane. Um, versus when I like speak to people who are much younger, they're almost like grateful to be being told what to do. It's like, I don't know. So how long were you at unnamed charter school? I was there for three years. Three years. Yeah. I didn't see daylight for three years. And how far did you get in building your dream program? Um, It was pretty great. Actually, uh, the year I left, we did five shows. We had... Um, our first network network wide music festival that that I helped co-organize and we did like um, we had like judges for the kids and they they got to perform for a score and that was really fun and um, we had a guest performer that came down and and did like a choir performance and um, we had opportunities to take kids to shows in the city like I had a fair amount of repeat customers. So we were starting to build our nice little band community. Um, and yeah, we got some momentum going. It was, there were a lot of things about it that were really great. So what made you decide that uh, you wanted to get off the train? Uh, because I was miserable. <laughs> um, at some point, like, well, A, I realized I had turned into that teacher that I didn't want to be, that I wasn't playing, I wasn't doing anything artistically for myself. I wasn't actually doing anything outside of school because the demands of, of my job were such that, I mean, it was easy to put in like 50 hours a week and then you're just tired all the time. Um, and I felt like I wasn't so much doing a lot of teaching as, as I felt like I was doing behavior management and and the most important thing was behavior management and I 
didn't find that fun. I found that really soul destroying. Um, and I, and I think I now believe that burnout is a very real thing. I mean, and you read all the time about, you know, people go into teaching for five years and they're, they're done. And then they walk away from the profession, which is awful because at five years, you're just starting to not suck quite so hard. And, and, but it's, really exhausting and I'm sure that other professions are exhausting too but well were these behaviors that you were having to quote manage were they behaviors that were bothering you or were they behaviors that were unacceptable to the no I mean I think model part of the the struggle with um and I don't want to like say all charter schools but some charter schools models is this like you're managing everything with the kids like down to the point where you're managing the direction they can be looking at any given moment or whether or not they can be holding a pencil in their hand or how they need to be sitting in their chair. And when you're a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid, like, you're not going to like that. And and I think it creates, even amongst the, like, most well-behaved children, this desire to to rebel in any way possible. So... Um, the longer I was at this school, the more I was finding like kids were just really unhappy. They weren't coming to school for them wasn't fun. For me, going to school like you know people say high school was the worst years of their life, but I loved going to school. Um, I loved the process of learning. I loved having freedom to be with my friends. I loved being treated like with more respect the older I got. And and I don't think that this was the experience that. that that these kids were having that they were actually like really tired of being told what to do all the time and tired of having a silent lunchtime because of some transgression and then you couldn't talk and and I didn't want to be part of a system that was treating people like that that was again assuming like you don't know what you're supposed to be doing right now so I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to be doing and I couldn't stand behind that anymore, and I think that contributed to feeling really burnt out because you're, you're like trying to to stand up and justify things you don't actually believe in, um, and and manage behaviors that that you maybe don't see as super important where a child's pencil is at any given moment, as long as it's not like lodged in somebody's eyeball. Um, if your scope for rebellion as a teenager it includes like pencil position, I, know. I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of awful. It's kind of awful, and and for all this like this model of of extreme control of of all the behaviors and having these incredibly complex behavior management systems, the last year I taught, um, I had some of the hardest classes I've ever had, like kids who clearly did not enjoy coming to school and the enjoyment they got from coming to school was as much disruption as possible who were very unhappy with being in an educational setting so I guess I I don't understand what that's achieving if you're turning people off of wanting to learn because of of how it feels to be in that environment Um, it seems crazy to me Sounds like a win-win. You're turning people off from teaching, turning people off from learning. Yeah, soon nobody, we won't need schools, we won't need teachers, and, you know, we can all just descend into anarchy. It'll be great. Oh, wait, we did that last week. Huh? <laughs>
Just kidding. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's, everything's great. Fine. Nothing to, to see here. here. <laughs> Jinx. Uh, so uh, after 10 years, mm -hmm. you got off the teaching train. I did. And uh, do you miss anything about it? Yeah. I, I miss a lot of things. I mean, I miss, like, now that I have some distance and I don't feel exhausted, I feel, like really sad that I gave up something that was a pretty huge part of my identity for a decade. Um, you know, when people ask you, what do you do? And you say you're a music teacher, like, oh, people's eyes light up, like, oh, that's so cool. I mean, you get to make music with kids. Um, I had a lot of really cool students in 10 years who I still hear from who are really cool people that, that you know, I got to teach to do some really amazing things. Um, I'm not saying I won't ever get back into it one day. It's hard to imagine right now. Um, there's not like a huge demand for music programs in New York City, even though we are supposedly the arts mecca of the universe. Um, but yeah, I feel really sad about a lot of aspects of it not being there anymore. Um, I don't miss the emotional roller coaster that you're on every day as a teacher or the feeling that you're really tired and whatever you have kind of left over to give to your partner or to your family or to your friends is like kind of the scrapings at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, it's been really refreshing to to like have some distance and once I was out of it, like going, oh wow, like I was really unhappy. I didn't realize how unhappy I was until I stepped back and and didn't feel that unhappy anymore, but I'm not the only teacher experiencing this. And um, I'm close friends with a lot of people who are still there, who are in the same place I was in last year. And they're great teachers. And there has to be a way to make this more sustainable so that people don't walk away from it after five years or 10 years or 15 years, just throwing up their hands and saying, I can't do this anymore. Teachers shouldn't feel like prison guards. That shouldn't be part of part of a feeling ensemble that you have on a regular basis. I don't know. Charter schools are, I think there's some really good ones out there. I think they tend to be the kind of independent, standalone charters. I think the like, these giant networks of charter schools that are like moving in to revolutionize education. It's you know, it's not coming into a community and, and saying, and like saying, okay, what's going on here that's really, really great. It's coming into a community and saying, we're gonna show you the way, and this is how we're gonna do it. And, you know, we're gonna have you in this building 12 hours a day. And, and it's not like, it's not really community change. It's, it's you're doing everything wrong and we're here to show you the right way. And that doesn't seem particularly sustainable or organic or healthy in any way. Uh, as soon as you have somebody saying, like, there's one way to do it, mm -hmm. that's just usually not right. No. And there's never one way for every child anyway. That's never been the case. And in a school of, like, 500 individual children to say everyone must do it thusly is pretty crazy. After she left, I realized that we didn't talk about the specifics of her school's most frustrating practices during the interview. 
Though we've discussed them over lunch many times, I didn't really trust my memory, so I asked Selena to email me a few examples. She responded with a beautiful, angry, heartfelt essay that I will try to read to you right now. I have entitled her essay, Compliance. She writes, I can think of multiple instances where we were told, quote, we are striving for 100% compliance. Generally on things that seemed, in the big scheme of life, not super important. One particularly vivid example was the year we decided that it would make sense for all 400 teenagers to silently enter the cafeteria, stand behind a chair, and raise one arm up in the air before the start of our weekly community meeting. If you were among the first to arrive, you could be expected to hold this pose in silence for up to seven minutes. The rationale behind this was that it would speed up the transition time if everyone was silent. In practice, it ended up being frustrating and degrading as pockets of chatter would spring up here and there while an adult on stage would drone over and over, I'm waiting for 100% compliance. We are not moving on until everyone is silent. This ritual was performed every Friday afternoon, not teenagers' most zen time. It would create a horrible tone for the beginning of what was supposed to be a moment to come together as a community and talk about issues and challenges that kids were facing. I was always struck by the irony of struggling to silence 400 students only to then ask them to open up and share their innermost thoughts. I should also point out they were not being unruly. This was the normal ambient noise of a cafeteria, but for some reason the powers that be decided that we should spend huge amounts of time standing in total silence. Compliance was also what was looked for in my classroom, not in my case at least regarding curriculum. In three years, no one ever asked what I was teaching the kids, ever. Compliance in terms of, were kids sitting correctly? Back straight, feet on the floor, eyes locked on the instructor. If I asked for pencils down, did it happen in two seconds or less? If I gave a direction, did it happen, quote, urgently? Another favorite charter term, as if everything is an emergency. It was someone's job to sit in the back of my classroom and calculate the percentage of children who were on task by the above definitions, and then send me a report letting me know that only 95% of scholars complied with the direction to track you. The expectation was that I would also wait in the moment for things to happen. If one kid was still holding on to her pencil, then the rest of the class would pause while that child received a demerit for her transgression. I think it's possible that this model works well with younger children, but when you are telling an 18-year-old mini-adult that they have to have their pencil in a specific place, often when all they were doing was finishing note-taking, it starts to really grate on everyone in the room. I continuously felt that I was being asked to focus on the tiny, mundane happenings in a room at the cost of investment as a whole. You cannot get kids to be invested in where the pencil is, it's just not that interesting. I harp on the pencil example because once during a summer training, I spent an hour with 10 other teachers role-playing exactly this scenario. Seriously, an hour on how to tell somebody to put their pencil down. The point of all this is to say that when I was quote developed or mentored, what was being pushed was compliance from children, the markers for a successful classroom being silence and unwavering eye contact, never on content. It can really skew your focus as an educator. 
You stop thinking about success in terms of growth and learning and start to panic every time an administrator walks into your room that someone may glance down at the floor while you're talking. An unhealthy dynamic for everyone. The other facet of compliance that sticks in my mind is that we were constantly telling kids to hold their reactions. Obviously, young adults are going to have extreme responses to things, and part of growing up is learning how to time and place with your emotions. But we were being asked to monitor things like a sigh in response to getting a demerit, a transgression with which earned you another demerit and an afternoon in detention. I don't even know adults who are this self-aware and able to monitor every verbal and non-verbal response to a situation. There is also something inherently disturbing in a predominantly white staff constantly telling black and brown kids to hold their emotional responses down. The silencing on all fronts feels wrong. We did allow kids to have joyful responses when appropriate, such as a pep rally, but in those cases we would practice, quote, bringing it back quickly, as in, you can cheer for 10 seconds, but then we need unanimous pin drop silence at a moment's notice. Nothing like quickly suppressed joy to create a genuinely warm sense of community spirit. I could go on. We used to get posture expectations for adults during PD. No slouching, pencils moving at all times. As if I had reached adulthood without any sense of how to be professional in a meeting. The time I was told that what tile to stand on in the cafeteria for my lunch post. The time someone offered to model for me how to stand in a staircase because apparently I was doing it wrong. The time someone insinuated that perhaps teaching wasn't for me because I hadn't been invested in everyone in my room sitting with identical posture. The time I was asked to wear a headset while someone muttered instructions into my ear to strengthen my classroom management, etc, etc. The choices were to stand behind these things with unquestioning obedience or have a, quote, courageous conversation about why you weren't. Spoiler alert, not really a conversation. On a music ed note, I wanted to emphasize the importance of parents or grown-ups in the success of a kid's musical experience. My folks spent countless hours ferrying me here and there, waiting in parking lots, taking me to practice, etc. A challenge I faced all the time was the lack of parental involvement regarding my students. In New York City, we have a whole generation of parents and administrators who grew up without the opportunity to have musical experiences, so it is sometimes incredibly difficult to sell them on the importance of what we are doing. I had numerous experiences with kids being pulled from shows at the last minute because it just wasn't that important in the eyes of the parents. Our job is not just about getting the kids invested, we also need to convince all the adults that music is worthy of their time. Phew! As some of my kids might say, fire! As in, that was really good. I suspect that any institution or system that forces someone of Selena's dedication, ability, and passion to ask for the check and leave the restaurant is doing something horribly wrong. All right then, as you may have noticed, this is the, the first episode that did not stem from or revolve around Newtown, Connecticut. I still have at least two shows planned to officially close out that chapter of the podcast, so stay tuned, Newtonians, if that's a word. Uh, as always, if you want to find me, I'm on Facebook. Uh, my website is Biva Productions, B-V-A Productions.com. Thanks for listening. Click the like button, go to iTunes or something, and I'll see you next time. Peace.
p.m. This message is intended for William, William Boss. My name is Matt Peterson with the Department of Legal Affairs at the U.S. Treasury, and I was trying to reach you in regards to a very important issue. This is a verbal notification for William Boss in regards to the enforcement action started on your name. My callback number is 909-366-5733. Wednesday, 11.46 a.m. Hi, this message is intended to contact you. My name is Kevin Mason, and I'm calling regarding an enforcement action executed by the U.S. Treasury intending your serious attention. Ignoring this will be an intentional attempt to avoid initial appearance before a magistrate judge or a grand jury for a federal criminal offense. Monday, 10.01 a.m. Intended to contact you in regards to the legal case filed against your name. This is Officer Brianna Scott from the Department of United States Treasury. This call is official final notice from United States Treasury. The nature and purpose of this call is to inform you that we have received a legal petition notice concerning a tax fraud against you still before the matter goes to federal claims courthouse or before you get arrested. Please call immediately on our hotline division number that is 2 Six seven eight eight one zero zero five one. Make sure you call us as soon as possible. Mom, do not call any of those numbers. Don't call these people back. Please, please.